Welcome back to the Consumer Rights Talk. I'm your host, Adam Deutsch of Northeast Law Group in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Thank you for listening to the show. To make sure that you get the latest episode every two weeks, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I'm working on getting the podcast available for subscription through Android-friendly services as well. But you can always listen to the time being at northeastlawgroup.com and click on the podcast tab. You can also follow me on Twitter at Adam Deutsch ESQ for updates about the podcast, upcoming guests, consumer law, and anything else on my mind. Probably life with a toddler or music. So anyhow, uh, today's interview was recorded in Las Vegas, Nevada, at the National Consumer Law Center's annual Fair Debt Collection Practices Act conference. The irony of having a conference of consumer rights attorneys who sued debt collectors for a living in Las Vegas was not lost on me or anyone else. It was a great conference this year, and I've attended the conference for a few years now, and I've noticed that there tends to be a different trend emerging in the law each year that gets focused in the different sessions. This year, there were multiple sessions focusing on debt collection problems arising out of student loans. At the conclusion of the conference, I had the opportunity to sit down with Josh Cohen, who is otherwise known as the student loan lawyer, to talk about his practice and the landscape of student loan-related litigation and representation. This is a great conversation. Josh is one of the foremost experts in this relatively new focus area of consumer law. And i got to tell you, if your practice is anything like mine, then you've had students come to you and ask for help, or or graduates, right, struggling with student loans, or parents who are now struggling to pay off their children's student loans. They want to know how they can get off of the loan. Uh, Do we have to do things through refinance? What are my repayment options? What happens if I leave a federal loan and I go to a private loan through refinancing and consolidation? Do I lose certain rights? What's the better option for me? And if you're anything like me, well, you found this area of the law to be fairly confusing. You know, my practice is built on litigation, and oftentimes the student loan questions have nothing to do with litigation. Right? These are really coaching people through what their options are. But Josh has set up a really unique business uh, around this area. And we discuss his growing law practice, which is based out of southern Vermont. See, Josh uses technology to expand the reach of his practice and meet with people from all over the country. He explains how he's built a model that allows him to consult by phone, Skype, or through some other video chat means, rather than meeting in person with clients. In addition to coaching borrowers through their repayment options, he also maintains a litigation practice built around student loans, and most often it's dealing with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Now, the final piece of Josh's practice consists of seminars where he trains other attorneys to become fluent in how to represent borrowers. And he's really a generous guy. I mean, he set up a network where on his website, he also lists different grads. And when his own docket is too full, he refers people out to other grads of his program who he has confidence in that they could represent the borrower as well. And I think that type of rising tide lifts all boats attitude has paid great dividends for Josh. And he he talks about that during the pod. So I encourage you to visit his website, and I'm actually going to give you two different ones. You can go to thestudentloanlawyer.com to learn more about his uh, direct practice and litigation. And he also has some videos there and on YouTube that you could search for as well. And then separately, go on and take a look at studentloanlawworkshop.net. 
studentloanlawworkshop.net to find out when the next seminar will be held. They are held all over the country a few times a year. And these days, Josh has managed to get them set up for CLE credit. So, you know, you can kill two birds with one stone, which we all love to do. If you're going to be going to the seminar and learning about the practice area, why not get your credits at the same time? Well, I hope that you enjoy the talk. If you do like the podcast, please do rate and review us so that it definitely helps more people find the podcast and spread the word to other NACA members and other consumer rights attorneys uh, that you may know in your community. So without further ado, here's my talk with Josh. All right, I'm sitting here with Josh Cohn, better known as the Student Loan Lawyer. We are in Las Vegas, sitting together in person uh, following the NCLC FDCPA conference. And Josh was a presenter this year. Somehow it took us flying almost the entire way across the country to meet, although we live uh, really about an hour and 15 minutes from each other. So uh, Josh, thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you for inviting me. And I wanted to start by figuring out a little bit about your background and how exactly did you become the student loan lawyer? When did you decide you were going to be an attorney? So I decided um, on law school after I got married and realized I had another person to support. At the time, I was living in Orlando working for a, was a business manager at a school for youth offenders. <clears throat> and uh, I, was, I was tapped out on my salary at uh, 35. And I, uh, I realized I needed to do something else. I took the LSAT and uh, snowballed from there. And you right out of law school, did you know you wanted to work in student loans? I mean, was that, you, you said, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to law school. You planned it all out ahead, right? And, and you knew you were going to do it. I had nothing planned, actually. I went to law school already having an MBA thinking, wow, I really love constitutional law and I've got an MBA. What can I do with that? And my con law professor said, oh, you can defend the constitutional rights of businesses. And I choked. I'm like, no, that's not me. It's not yeah, me at all. Businesses are people. The, Citizens United <laughs> aside. Um, and so during law school, I learned about consumer law. And coincidentally, had my own problem with my cell phone. I'm like, there's got to be something we can do here. And I learned about consumer law. My second summer, my 2L summer, I worked at uh, Legal Aid in Waterbury, Connecticut. And I learned about the FDCPA. Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Um, and after that, they uh, hooked me up with a private attorney that was teaching a class on FDCPA. And um, I walked out with an interview. And two weeks later, I started at his firm. So through law school, I learned about consumer law and I learned about the FDCPA. But student loans was nowhere in that picture. What's really funny is the student loans was kind of a happy accident. I. Um, my work-study job in undergraduate was in the financial aid office, so I already knew the lingo. It just made sense to me. While I was at legal aid over that summer, an elderly gentleman came in and his social security was being offset for a student loan. And I jumped up, I said, oh, this is easy. They said, it's all yours. We don't even know what to do. I'm like, well, you just consolidate it. They're like, Josh, we don't know what you're talking about, but go do it. And by the end of the summer, he was out of default. He was paying five bucks a month. Great. You know, he's 73. I just wanted to make sure he was, he was good to go, and he was. And so when I was working with this other attorney doing FTCPA, I eventually passed the bar, 
started my own law firm. And I walked out of my old firm carrying a file with someone that had an FDCPA on a student loan collection. And we were a little leery to bring an action because we knew there was a student loan bent to it, but we didn't know what it was. And so I did a little bit of research and my old boss said, that's great, but I need somebody else to back up what you're saying here. And so we called NCLC and they said, yeah, Josh is right. You got a claim there. So here I am, I just passed the bar and nine months later I start a class action. What year are we? 2009 is 2009 is when I filed the class action uh, against uh, General Revenue, a large debt collector. And just before we started that, a second client came into my boss's office with the exact same violation. So we knew we were good to go. Um, and when I started my firm, I was just doing credit card collection defense and FDCPA and FCRA, Fair Credit Reporting Act stuff. Um, and when the class action got started, I realized there's probably a need for student loan work. So I contacted a few bankruptcy attorneys that I knew because most bankruptcy attorneys still didn't want to touch student loans. I said, look, my overhead's really cheap. I was 100 bucks an hour back then. Send me your student loan clients. You can keep the bankruptcy portion. Let me see what I can do with their student loans. I was flooded within six months. And I was getting calls from across the country from bankruptcy attorneys I had never met. And I'm like, is there an ethics issue? What is it? You, you know, and and I ended up just taking these cases and working them through. And 90% of the people I help is just getting them out of default and getting them onto a payment plan. It's not litigation intensive at all. Um, and from there, it just it sprung up. Um, <clears throat> I've always been an active member in NACA, National Association of Consumer uh, Advocates. Um, and I would always make sure to answer student loan questions from the other attorneys. That's what I could do. That was my help. And um, somebody asked if I teach this. Do I teach other attorneys how to do this stuff? And I'm like, I fell off my chair. I'm like, well, I'm a new attorney. Who am I going to? So in 2011, September, I started my first student loan law workshop teaching attorneys how to do this. Because you know what? I've got too many clients. There's, There's... 40 million borrowers. I will never run out of clients. Right. There will always be people that need help. So that's the short story. I mean, yeah, no, no, it's amazing. So um, there's a lot that I want to unpack. Um, first, you said roughly 90% of your work is getting people out of default and back into performing status. Correct. And so how do you structure this? I mean, for, for most of the attorneys that are really involved in NACA, I think that the majority of us operate in the world of fee shifting. And it would strike me that yours is, you're not in that world most of the time. So how do you work with your clients? That's correct. Um, you know, I came from the fee shifting world uh, outside of the debt defense work, which I, I always charge hourly because I knew who my defense, who my who the plaintiff's attorneys were. I was in a small state in Connecticut. Um, and so I went through several iterations. I'd give you know a free 15-minute consult and then try and sell them something bigger. Um, that failed miserably because how much can I tell them in 15 minutes without giving away the farm? Um, and then I started doing hour consultations for you know 100 bucks, and then I slowly went up. Um, and in the midst of all this, I moved from Connecticut to Vermont. People don't want to drive to Vermont to come see me. And that's actually good because I realized 
I didn't like meeting in person with all of my clients. They're wonderful people, but I was getting hugs from people I didn't want hugs from. <laughs> and I just, um, and so eventually the model I settled on is I offer a 30 minute analysis. It's a paid analysis. They don't talk to me until they pay. I record it for them with their permission and they get a copy of it. And during those 30 minutes, I give them everything they need, how they got to where they are, where are they now, what are their options to get out, and which one makes sense to them. I want them to decide. A lot of what I'm doing is just translating right. what the servicer should already be telling them or the debt collector. And once they get that, they're like, oh, I should choose option B or A or C, whatever it is. And then it's, okay, how do I get this done? I give them the forms when we're done. I, I email them the recording with all the forms, and I give them a price quote. If you look at the forms and you want me to do it, here's my price. Do you want to do it yourself? Good. Because they really can do the forms on their own. Right. Most of the people that hire me are either extremely nervous they'll screw up, or they're, they're people that value the time of an attorney. They want it done right, and they'll pay me for it. So, I mean, you're, you're charging... You're charging them for a half an hour consult, but you must be spending uh, at least another half. I would imagine a lot more time prior to that reviewing everything. I mean, I get it. Your muscle gets better. You become, you know, you know what you're looking for, whatever, but uh, you're certainly spending more time, right? Actually, I'm not. I can wrap up in 30 minutes, and I, I rarely look at much of their file beforehand. Really? So I've automated my intake system. People book online. Uh, when that booking comes in, we send them an online intake form, which has a series of questions, very basic questions. Um, and I also request for federal loans, their NSLDS, National Student Loan Data System. It's the database from Department of Ed. So I take the NSLDS, the raw data, and I can read through it and do the entire analysis within 30 minutes. Part of what I do on my intake form is I have two very important fields. One what other things do I need to know that's not part of the check boxes so I can get some more detail? It's a chance for them to vent so they don't do it during the 30 minutes. And the second one I think is really important is what is their goal? Because the first thing I want to do is look at their goal and is their goal realistic or not? And if it's not, I know I got to spend part of that 30 minutes pulling them back down to reality and say, your goal isn't realistic, here's why, but here's what we can do. So I try to shape that conversation. All right, so I have two follow-ups. So one, uh, I would imagine the issue of a client knowing what their goal is, is often a, a problem that you have to deal with. I think that's very common for most of us, in particular in the debt scenario. How many times do you get, well, I want my loan forgiven or whatever, something I, like that, right? I, I do get a lot of, how do I get rid of my loan? or it's unfair, or I don't want to pay it. <coughs> Actually, I don't get that many, I don't want to pay it. I get the get rid of the loan for me. Uh, I get the internet myth of I'd like to settle it for pennies on the dollar. That ain't happening. Um, and we go through it. And there are some people where they may actually have a legitimate reason to get rid of it. Um, I love settlement. That is a great sales pitch for me. Because on federal loans, you can't settle it for less than 90%. So as soon as they realize that's not on the table, it's the, it's the oh crap moment. Well, now what? Well, now we're going to talk about it. we got 29 minutes left. Let's yeah. talk about it. Um, and oftentimes what I find is 
All the client wants is a plain English explanation of what's going on and what can they do. And as soon as they get that, everything's good. One of my favorite lines that I have is, um, I'm a lawyer and I'm here to talk about your legal obligation. I can't talk about your moral obligation. Because I notice with different generations, there are some that feel very morally inclined to pay their debt no matter what. And I find it's the older generations that are, you know, they're draining their 401ks or they're using their social security checks to pay off a $500 a month student loan payment. Let's, let's change our priority. Let's change our perception on what you can legally do here. So. Uh, uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. All right. So then the other follow-up that I have is I want to know more about the technology that you've set up for the intake. I mean, what, what is your, no, but really, what is your system? Actually, it's available to everybody. God, I hope I get a referral fee for this. I use um, Clio as my practice management, and Clio just uh, purchased Lexicata, which I was using before the merger. Lexicata is a CRM, it's a customer relation management tool. And while I don't use it for its full effectiveness, what I love about Lexicata is as a CRM, it's meant for retaining and attracting clients and prospects. So what I've done, what you can do with Lexicata is you can pre-program emails, uh, email templates based on whatever that situation is. So, um, and you can track where they are in your intake funnel. You know, first contact, uh, you've sent a contract, you've done this, you've done that. Um, but you can also create documents through Lexicata that they can just review or or even sign. So they partner with uh, HelloSign. So all of my retainer agreements are electronic. Wow. And I send it electronically. They sign it digitally. It gives them a choice of how they want to sign it. Gives them a choice to print it out if they want. They sign it. And in my contract um, email, which has the contract attached to it, I also put a credit card payment link. I can be retained within five minutes. Right. And you're using law pay through Clio as well. That's exactly it. And, and I, don't, I don't have the functionality, I haven't used LawPay through Clio, but the point is you can get the link from uh, LawPay and you plug it into Lexicata in your email and that's it. Boom. One link gets them to the payment link, the other link gets them to the contract, they can review, they have questions, they've got my signature block, and they contact me. And it's just, it's nice to take out the confusion of how to be retained. And, and make it simple. The easier you make it for the client, the easier everything is. And so you're doing consultations in half an hour blocks. What does a typical week look like for you? So um, practicing in Connecticut is, is interesting. Um, Connecticut does all of their short calendars motions on Mondays. So I always keep Mondays open because I won't know until the week prior if I have a court date for a, a particular motion or something. Um, so Mondays are always open. I do my calls on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Those are the two days that I picked. And I only do them on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thursdays and Fridays I keep open for what am I reviewing? Do I have any litigation uh, defense cases that I'm working on or affirmative claims? Um, and it's just, it's processing everything else through the funnel uh, that I need to work on. I still have an administrative assistant that does a lot of the, the documents, but I find I, and flooded with new cases every every week, really. Is your assistant full-time? Yes, and I actually have a new person, a 
the second person coming on in two weeks. And they're both in Vermont with you? Yes. Interesting. And how did you, when did you decide to take that plunge and hire someone? And what was that process like for you? So I actually went through, this was a metamorphosis as well. Um, it was actually a couple of years ago um, when I was going through growing pains and I was at the, the CLRC, uh, Consumer Rights Consumer Rights Litigation Conference uh, in D.C., talking to a couple more experienced NACA members and I explained what was going on and everyone said, you need to have an assistant. You got to get yourself off the phone because if you pick up the phone, they start venting. Yeah. You need a gatekeeper. That's the point of an administrative assistant. It doesn't matter what else they do. They're the gatekeeper. And it's easier for them on the phone because they can always say, I'm not the lawyer. I can't answer your question. This is how we work. Um, so back then, I actually grew my firm. I had three people working for me. And I didn't really understand the whole dynamics of how to run a firm because I was still going through my own growing pains infrastructure-wise. Um, and eventually, I got rid of all of them for lots of different reasons. So I was truly solo as of last March. And then over the summer, I actually brought in a business manager who just happens to be my brother. So it was really cheap. Uh, family's good. Um, and we sat down and I looked at all of my different funnels and all of my different areas of law practice within student loans. So I've got my litigation area. I've got my uh, analysis area, which has no litigation. And then I've got the outliers, which are uniquely student loan issues that may or may not be litigation, but what are we going to do with it? So we looked at those three buckets and realized, I'm really busy. How much of that is legal? How much of that should be delegated down? And, and the gatekeeping again. So I finally decided I was ready for an administrative assistant. And I was talking to my wife while we were having breakfast. Uh, my wife and I only get to have breakfast dates because we have three kids. Um, and we were talking at our local restaurant. Um, and our, our normal waitress was there and she overheard, she's like, uh, when can I start? That's great. And, and my wife turned to me and, and we talked afterwards and it turns out she was the perfect fit. Really? Because she had management experience of the restaurant. She was a problem solver, uh -huh. which is exactly what you need. You need someone, if you're going to hire an administrative assistant, you want someone who's autonomous. But having someone that's a problem solver and is a people person is such a plus because that's what they're doing. They're the gatekeeper. Um, and so she does an excellent job on the phone. Her learning curve was great. And it's through her that I was physically, I was able to watch my numbers go up. I'm in a unique position where I don't do any advertising and I'm booked every week. Yeah. But what I noticed is the one of the first things requirements I gave her job responsibilities was to call and confirm my appointments for Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And I noticed I have a lot fewer people not showing up and a lot more people are paying. And that in itself, she pays for herself. On Monday when she confirms, she pays for herself for the week right. and then some. Um, and it's through her that we have even more business than I anticipated, so I'm hiring person number two. It's a remarkable thing. I know that the Clio small firm study this year showed that solo attorneys who have an assistant, paralegal or admin assistant, make more money at the end of the day after expenses than those that don't have an assistant. And 
as somebody who is a currently a true solo, it's hard. And I think everyone hits hits this moment where it's it's hard to conceptualize that eating that expense and maybe for a few month period you're going to be down, but then you rise up over the curve. It for me the the problem I always had was I didn't want to be responsible for somebody else's income. Right. And that's that's I, I suppose in some way that was maybe a lack of faith in myself and what I was doing with the firm. Um, I think what it boils down to is lawyers have to remember, unfortunately, you're not just a lawyer. You have to be a business person. And step one of being a business person is looking at your practice and realizing what are you not good at and who can you find to do it who is good at it. You know, it's okay to admit you have a weakness. It's, it's okay. So it's interesting. I mean, you and going back, you have an MBA. What what was the focus of it? Let me first say that my MBA is, <laughs> is, is my MBA is from uh, University of Phoenix. I'll just put it out there. Um, I don't know what my MBA is really worth, but what I know my MBA taught me was how to use a calculator so I can read my numbers and understand them, and how to work an Excel spreadsheet. And I w- I'm a data kind of person anyway. I like watching my numbers. One of the things I love about Clio is when you open a matter in Clio or you put in your billing for Clio, it shows you what you build for the day. But Clio will ask you to set up what do you expect to do for the year and it breaks down what you need to do this month, what do you do this week, and how much should you make today. Right. And I can literally, whenever I'm feeling weird about the business, I go into Clio and I look at that number like, oh, my chart's good. I'm doing better than expected or I'm not or what do I need to do? And it just... It keeps things in perspective for me. And that faith made me realize I can hire an admin. And you're right. A lot of this is kind of like driving a manual car where, you know, you rev the RPMs and it drops when you first, when you up, when you shift. The engine's not going as fast, but you're still going faster. And that's, that's what this is. And if you can. And and actually, it's a great analogy because in a way, um, you're working not quite as hard, right? There are fewer revolutions and, it, and you're, you're getting there at the same speed. So you're... That's exactly what it is. And, and business is a constant cycle of upshifting and downshifting and, and doing stuff. But I feel so much more efficient because I have this assistant that I have to make sure I'm paying. And yet I'm looking at all the other things that I don't worry about anymore because she gets them done. And in fact, she makes me more accountable because I told her that's her job. When they call... You tell me. I may not have touched the file yet, but at least they know they spoke to someone. So I'm calming down people. I can't tell you how much less likely you are to be grieved when you have someone answering the phone who can at least talk to that person. Right. Um, Especially if you're dealing with a volume business, which you are, then I can only imagine what that's like for the phone. I mean, it's, it's one thing if you're a solo who does litigation and you have you know, no more than 20 active files at a time or something like that. It, it, it's, it, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, and it's just, I mean, the, the thing, the client just wants to talk to someone, even if we can't help them. The fact that somebody picked up the phone and said, I'm sorry, we can't help you, but here's a resource, and I always refer them out to NACA. Right. You know, because I don't do auto fraud. Yep. Someone on NACA does That's that. my go-to also, as I and, say, look in your area, your geographical region. I get calls from out of state all the time like and, that. And that's all they want. They just want to, is someone listening? And and if they are a, the right client for me, they vent to my admin, which is saving me time 
And they don't always say anything of material that I need to know, but they just want someone to listen to them and not yell at them and know that there's hope, especially for student loans. They just want to know there's hope. That makes That's sense. So you said you don't do any advertising. I, no. And but but your website, right? I mean, <laughs> what is your website? I'm at www.thestudentloanlawyer.com. Yeah, so I mean that's pretty well searchable. It is, um, and I'll admit I used to do marketing before I worked at the uh, at the school. When I lived in D.C., I worked at a, at a marketing advertising company. I used to write copyright, and I miss those days. But doing my website was a way for me to to get out that creative juices. Um, I'd love to blog. I'm just not disciplined enough to do it. My sure. last blog post is a year old. Um, I started a vlog, video, because yep. I like doing it. But it's you got to be disciplined. Um, I can't remember the last time I was active on my Twitter handle. Right. And so to me, I, I think the, the lesson here is social media is free and it's easy. And, you know, people are just looking for experts. They just want someone who's, oh, I can relate to what they just wrote. I'll call this guy. And I mean, a lot of the blogs that I wrote way back in the past still resonate today. And I'm lucky in that respect. Well, you, you happen to be in, in an area of law that is growing and evolving, but it hasn't changed that much, right? I mean, we're getting, we're getting a lot of the decisions for the first time, we're getting, but, but so much of it, it ends up being regulatory. A lot of it's regulatory, and we're seeing this administration would like to undo a lot of stuff, and thus far they haven't. And even still, they're not going to have vast shifts. And if there are, I'm going to be in even more demand, because everyone's going into disarray. Um, I think what's funny is, you know, I don't really have competition. I know everybody in this space, and I know the big guns in this space. I would say that, to me, there's two of you. I think there's three of us, but, um, you know, and I know all of them. And I've trained most of my competition through my workshop, and yeah. I don't consider it competition. No, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about, uh, this has been a theme that I've picked up on through conversations with other consumer advocates, that there's just a sense that no matter what your particular focus is, there's always more consumers in need of representation than there are attorneys in our field to do it. Uh, and that just always seems to be the sense. So, and that's a good segue into the student loan uh, lawyer workshops that you do in the training. So, mm -hmm. when was the first training session that you did? Uh, my very first one was September 2011. That's right. And how frequently are you doing them? So, this year I did a back to basics tour, is what I'm calling it. I've got for 2019, I believe there were 17 dates scheduled. Wow. Um, I've already done three, and I've got a whole bunch more, and I'm touring the country, and I picked up a few secondary markets because I'm trying to take the excuse out of people not coming. Oh, I don't want to travel. I'm in your town. Oh, it's expensive. I actually cut the price by a thousand bucks. It's like I, I don't think people realize how much I want to help them succeed because it helps me succeed. Sure. And Here's an interesting statistic. So I looked at my website traffic. My brother is also a techie, so he showed me how to do all this. Google Analytics, if you're not looking at your web stats, you need to. So I looked, I'm getting 9,000 hits a month. Mm -hmm. 
4,500 of them. Half of them are going directly to my graduate listing. Wow. I list my graduates. I don't get a referral fee out of it. Right. I list my graduates. Half of the people visiting my site are looking for local attorneys. I'm not your competition. That's I'm your really lead gen. And it's free. Okay, it's not free. You've got to pay for the workshop. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's, for the one-time fee. Of, it's, yeah. it's, you know, yeah, it's a one-time fee. Um, and I keep a listserv for any graduate, so we have our own little listserv going. And, you know, uh, and my brother being the techie, we're revamping the website. We're revamping the graduate listings so that people can not only find you, but what area do you work in? Because a lot of my graduates are bankruptcy attorneys. But not everyone wants a bankruptcy attorney or needs right. it. So I've... I also list consumer attorneys. Do you do FTCPA or FCRA? Because I want them to find the right student loan lawyer. I think people fail to realize how vast the student loan arena is. You can be a consumer attorney that's FTCPA, FCRA. You can be a bankruptcy attorney. I have some people that are actually doing student loans as a retirement plan. They stop doing everything else. They only do student loan analyses. And as soon as they see a litigation issue, they can refer it out on the network to someone that can take it. How do you like that? Uh, that's actually very interesting. I mean, it makes sense, right? If you, you become transactional, you don't have the long-term or in the ups and downs and the stress of litigation. Yep. So what does a workshop look like? Is it one day, is it multiple days? So I do a two-day workshop. I do a Friday, Saturday, um, and it's all day, nine to five. Um, I usually include lunch with it. I have coffee breaks. Um, I give you time to digest Friday night and Saturday morning we're back at it again. Fridays I spend all day doing just federal student loans. Just the nitty gritty. Going through the regs, the whole thing, practical application, the calculator, how to get the NSLDS, how to read it, things like that. Um, the second day is private loans, litigation defense. I do an FTCPA primer and FCRA primer as it relates to student loans. I talk about bankruptcy. There's actually some fun stuff you can do with bankruptcy, chapter 13, some student loans. Um, I talk about adversary proceedings to discharge Anyone them. Anyone who's had fun in bankruptcy, I think, is suspect. Well, it's because I don't actually do bankruptcy. <laughs> um, I'd love to do bankruptcy work. I don't have time. Sure. And when you hang around enough NACPA members, you realize you don't want to do bankruptcy. Um, so, I mean, I talk about all of it. And then my brother comes on for the last hour and a half, and he talks about marketing. Because that is still an important part. It's not just how do you get these people in your office, but how do you convert them? What pricing structure works? Not in a price-fixing way, because geographics matter. Sure. Um, but it's, you know, be comfortable charging for an analysis. Be comfortable charging for a consult, because as fee-shifting attorneys, we don't charge for consults, or you don't have to. Some do, some don't. Uh, a lot of bankruptcy attorneys don't charge because they're afraid that their competition doesn't, so they don't. So learning to be comfortable and confident in charging for that, and then learning some of the processes. What's also neat about student loan work, and this is fun, there's recurring clients. Right. Because if they're in an income payment plan, they have to recertify every year. And a lot of people, though they can do it themselves, realized you do it for me, you remind me, it's cheap enough, and it gets done. Show me a field of law where you want that recurring business. You don't want it in bankruptcy. That's a bad thing. Sure. <laughs> and even still, how often are they coming back for bankruptcies? We'd be doing every five years for 13, you know. Um, and that, re that residual income puts your law firm in a different category. It's, 
very interesting. And so for those types of clients, do you set uh, calendar reminders and you have everything automated in that way? Yes, we do. So um, we, we, um, we have a system set up so that it, we flag the account once they've been enrolled so that in 10 months we remind them. Their servicer will remind them, but we're going to remind them too. They're not locked into hiring us again. It's a new contract and a new fee. I always give people the opt-out. People love a walk away. They're like, wait a minute, you're going to let me do it on my own? Are you sure? Am I capable? I'm here if you want me, but right. you can do this on your own. That transparency builds so much trust. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was right years ago when they said no one should be paying. You can do it on your own. You can. Oh, yeah. And I always give them that option. It's amazing the respect that you get from a client when you say you really don't need to hire me. But here's what it costs, and if they decide to anyway, then okay, fine, sure. And, and I've had, you know, I have a few analyses where I'll return the 250. I'm like, I'm not going to help you during this call. Here's what I see. I can't do anything. I'm giving you back your 250. Right. And or there are times when like I, they want to hire me. I'm like, I can't, I can't take your money, and I won't take your case because there's literally nothing I'm going to do. For instance, uh, they're in default. They want to hire me to monitor a, a debt collector. I personally don't charge a fee to wait for the debt collector to screw up. Right. I mean, you get a debt collection letter, send me the letter. I'll look at it. If you're in Vermont or Connecticut and I see a violation, I'll bring the FDCPA. If you're somewhere else, I'll issue spot it. I'll help you find someone else who can bring it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to charge for that babysitting. I, I can't. Sure. I, some people can. And so at this point with the uh, workshops, I mean, you're, they're in hotels typically? So the workshops I do in hotels, um, uh, I try to have it closer to the airport or things right. like that. Um, you know, again, we start at nine o'clock in the morning, we go till five. Um, and so the other piece here that I haven't really gone public with is I co-wrote student loan software. Um, and it's a DIY system so consumers can use it. And it's for very, very basic. I'm in default, what do I do? And it takes the NSLDS and it translates it into plain English and wow. says, okay, here are your options. But it does it on a very basic level because it can't get, it's AI. It can't give you every single option. It'll give you the most basic of options and it'll give you a written report. And if you want it to do the docs, it's a flat fee. It's 49 bucks. Wow. We made a professional version. So you, Adam, can sign up at studentloanify.com. You can go there. You can create a lawyer account. And for $99, what will happen is um, the, you can use it as your intake form. So you put in your client's name and email address and phone number. It sends them an intake form. It tells you when they filled out the form. And as long as they paid you for the analysis so you're not losing money, mm-hmm. you, you get an email that says it's complete. You follow the email. It brings you back to the site. It shows you that everything's complete. It gives you not just the written analysis for the consumer, it's also white-labeled for your, your information. Um, and more importantly, it has a lawyer analysis. What to do, how to guide your client through this situation. That's amazing. Is it a consolidation? Is it a rehabilitation? Is it just a simple IDR plan? Is it something more complex that we need to, that, you know, it, it, they, have, they said they were in a bankruptcy, have you talked to the bankruptcy attorney? things like that. Um, and it also says, here's where it gets really complicated. You might want to talk to someone more advanced. So if you're a workshop grad, you are that advanced person. You right. know what to do. If you're not, 
I'm a grad. So that's studentloanify.com? www.studentloanify.com. And loanify, just IFY at the end? Yes. All right, excellent. <laughs> um, so uh, at this point, how many grads do you have out of the program? I've got about 360. Any repeaters? Yes, actually. I get, I get quite a few people that come back for refreshes because there have been changes. Um, and I offer discounts to grads because I'm not here to milk them. I want to make sure they're doing they're, they're doing well. I understand that it'll vary based on you know where the program is being held, but is there a typical price range? Oh, I have a locked-in price no matter where it is. Okay. And right now I charge fourteen ninety five. Right. One thousand four hundred ninety five. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Um, and it's it's the website is uh, got all the dates, all the information. I'm working on getting CLE credit, and I do have for a few states already, mostly in the South, because that's where I started. Uh, Texas and Florida just came online, so that's a huge thing. You're getting 12 hours of CLE credit. Wow. So uh, there are some states that I don't have credit. Um, but, you know, come for the knowledge. Walk away with the, the CLE credit, too. Um, but one thing that I... I think is really important in all of this is, is I do the listserv because I want to make sure that there's continuing support. I'm not just sending you out in the world. I want to make sure you're succeeding. And if you're having problems, I'm still here for you. Um, and, you know, uh, that, you know, I'll support however I can. That's fantastic. Um, so I want to ask a few more questions and then we'll, we'll start finishing up here. Uh, what, what do you find to be, you know, the, the, the biggest couple of challenges for your clients? I think the biggest challenge for most clients is just understanding what is going on. And quite often they come to you, my loan has been sold 17 times. Federal loans are never sold. What they're talking about is the assignment from one debt collector to the next, to the next, to the next. It was with Navient that I went to Sally Mae, no, that's the same company. And, and then it went to Great Lakes, that means they defaulted. And now it's with GC Services, that means debt collector. It's being able to translate all of that and then separating the myth from the fact. Oh my God, they're going to take my 401k. They can't touch your 401k. They're going to take my social security. You're not in default. They can't take your social security. They're going to take my driver's license. Okay, there are a lot of states where that could happen, but I, I don't know anyone that has really happened. The New York Times did a story on this. Um, you know, the Getting them through fact from fiction. I mean, they read Wikipedia and it's still not accurate. <laughs> Surprise. Right. It's just, it's getting through all of that and then understanding what their options are. Or, oh, I'm going to have a tax debt in 25 years. You can take the tax debt in 25 years or you can default now. I mean, th those are sucky choices either way. But a lot of this is perception and understanding where Fed loans fit into your budget, which to me... They're right after housing, clothing, food, and uh, your car. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Federal loans come before your credit cards. Oh, but my credit rating. Do you understand? Federal loans will kill your credit much quicker than a credit card. Uh, federal loans come before private loans. But, 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 private loans got to sue you. Fed loans don't. Make the creditor work. Believe it or not, not every, not every private lender sues. I find that ridiculous, but I know it for a fact. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, and I don't want to drop names, but some of them don't sue. Some of them always sue. But once you can, you can give 
you can define the client's reality, they all of a sudden, you're turning this massive weight, this rock, into a pebble. And they carry the pebble in their pocket. And yeah, sometimes it nags them a little bit, but they're in control. That's the other ultimate thing. This is, I like to say, this is a Frank Sinatra song. They want to do it their way. Even if they're in default and they're losing, they got to be in control. It's why people hate a wage garnishment. They yeah. still want to pay the debt. They just want to do it their way. Now, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that typically, I think, you know, the, the scariest thing is when you, you don't know what your rights are or you see so many options. So I have five or six repayment options. Oh, my goodness. How do I make sense of what, what's the best thing for me? But constantly, I'm also reading articles on a daily basis coming out about how programs are going to change, right? We, yeah. you know, we could go to the, we could jump straight to the big one, which is, will the nonprofit forgiveness plan mm -hmm. actually be fulfilled? Will it remain? Will it go away? You reference the idea that after 25 years of repayment, loans are forgiven, which Keep in mind, the standard repayment term is 10 years when you originate. Yep. So for those people, they're going on onto a situation where they are voluntarily putting themselves into negative amortization, mm -hmm. which is really scary because mm -hmm. your balance is growing every year. Um, I, I, I haven't even gotten to a question because I'm all over the well, place. Well, no, that's... But, but I think one of the, one of the reasons attorneys don't get into this realm is simply because of the bombardment of information and unclear even from our standpoint as to whether all this is going to change tomorrow. So I may finally get up to speed and then it's going to change. You know, what I find hysterical is I hear all these lawyers saying, oh, student loans are so complicated. I'm like, you're a tax attorney. Isn't the IRS code complicated? And honestly, I think the IRS code is a whole lot more complicated than student loans. What's the difference? There are lots of tax attorneys. And you have the IRS, which is a very different agency than the Department of Education. The IRS, I, I don't even think I can compare the two. There are people at the IRS that can sort of help you. You know, um, they have offer and compromise. They'll actually settle debts. It's so 180 from Department of Education who says, we can't help you and neither can our servicers. Now, I, I mean, they'll help you. They won't, but they will. And that's, that's the problem. So I don't, I understand it, but I don't buy the lawyers think, oh, it's so hard. I think it's just the opposite. You have the Higher Education Act. It's the playbook. Read the playbook. And my fun, one of the funniest conversations I had with the debt collector years ago, I read them the code. <laughs> this is the code for reading, I'm reading the law section, yada, yada. And the debt collector said, that's not what it says. Who's the lawyer in this conversation? I'm reading the, and you know, that made a fabulous FDCPA when it came up. But, so you've got a playbook. Now, okay, how do, you, how do you deal with the uncertainty of what's going forward? How do you deal with the uncertainty of the tax code? And the tax code actually changed. Department or, of that stuff did. Or any but, other area of consumer law. I mean, all it takes is, is one case going up to the circuit that you don't even know is out there right now, and yeah. it changes. I mean, I think, I mean, for public service loan forgiveness, I think there's been a lot of fear-mongering. I think in some ways that report that came out that said, you know, only 1% of people were granted public service loan forgiveness. I'm sorry, before I sit, that was planted by the Department of Education because they want this to fail. 
And the truth is most people didn't qualify because the payment plans weren't available in 2007. They were in 2009. I think October 2019 is when we start to see a lot of them. But here's my real reason why I think PSLF will never go away. Guess who qualifies for public service loan forgiveness? Every staff member of every congressional representative. <laughs> that is a brilliant point. Uh, I'm your boss and I'm about to screw you figuratively on your student loans. Yeah. We're going to take away that forgiveness plan that, that you're getting. But hey, thanks for being my chief of staff. I just, I don't see public service loan forgiveness going away. I know through the budget process, it could be limited in how much they forgive. Even that, I'm not overly worried about. I mean, remember, when they talk about forgiving a loan, they're talking about forgiving what they're going to collect. They've already spent the money. And that's a, that's a deal that a lot of people forget. The money is already gone. It left 10 years ago. This is about recoupment. Right. You're not going to get it anyway. How much are you getting? I mean, nobody has done how much does it cost to collect that money? What is our real return on investment? There's also a decent chance that they've recovered the entire principal anyway, plus a little bit of interest, and they're basically forfeiting a portion of interest. Yeah, I mean, if they really want to fix the system, make the servicers work right. If you if you fix that efficiency, then you know public service loan forgiveness wouldn't be as big a deal because we'd be losing less less to collect that money in the first place. Um, you know, I'm not an economist, and I never want to be, but I think those are the those are the things that advocates need to kind of look at and sit with the economists and say, what is it really costing us? This is about hemorrhaging. We're already bleeding, okay? Public service loan forgiveness is the tourniquet. It stops it. Okay, all these people are out of the funnel. We don't have to worry about collecting from them anymore. IDR, we're getting something. Their credit is good. And, I mean, if you really want to get fun, how does it affect the GDP? We want people paying, which means they have good credit, which means they're buying houses, they're buying cars, they're doing credit card debt, yep, they're keeping us all employed. That's, that's the point that a lot of people miss. Because if you pull the carpet out and you get rid of all of these income-driven repayments, you're going to see the default rate skyrocket. And it wouldn't surprise me if it goes past 50%. Looking at your crystal ball five years from now, more defaults, fewer defaults, same level of default that we have now. Oh, uh, I... There are a lot of factors here. Factor one, how well are servicers advertising IDR? In some ways, they're getting better because they're getting pressure. In some ways, they're not. <clears throat> How much is the for-profit school industry affecting this? Because we all know they have a higher default rate. So are we either shutting them down or are they better educating their, their um, graduates? Are they being more selective? <laughs> that doesn't help their profits. Um, honestly, if for-profits wanted to redeem themselves, they would sign up their graduates with IDR immediately after graduation and then they'd get rid of their large default rates. Even though the people are only paying 10 bucks a month, right? that would clear it up. And all of a sudden, they'd look better. I still think it's crap education. Sure. But what's really getting them in trouble is the fact that no one's paying the loans back. But the majority of back. student loans are, are not from for-profit um, universities. According to 25% uh, of them are. And of, they of, of issued student loans? or 25% are in the for-profit sector. Wow. And I believe the number I just saw in one of the, the presentations was... 40% of all defaults are from for-profit schools. 
Yeah, that, that's a huge percentage considering that it's only out of one quarter of the loans. Exactly. Yeah. Numbers don't lie. Spin does, but lie numbers don't. Right. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, what this administration decides to do and when we have a next administration, is it in four years? Is it in two years? What is it? Right. You know, and what does that administration look like? And what does the Department of Education look like? I mean, we have ebb and flow. And, you know, does the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau get restored and get their teeth put back in? I mean, they were doing fabulous work. They were raining in stuff left and right. And all of a sudden, nothing. Right. So there's just so many factors. I wouldn't. We're in Vegas. I wouldn't bet on this. I just wouldn't. Couldn't give you odds. Josh Cohen, is there anything else that you would like to tell our audience? I, I think student loans are worth learning about. I understand it doesn't fit into everyone's practice area. I think you should at least know about them. And if not, have someone to send them to. That doesn't necessarily mean me. Feel free to go look at my graduates on my website. If there's someone local to you, make that network connection. Because that now you're doing the value add of helping someone. And who knows? Maybe there's there's a consumer claim waiting there. It comes back to you. So well, for anyone who would like to learn more about student loans, obviously the studentloanlawyer.com will have a lot of resources. You could learn about uh, Josh's next and upcoming seminars and reach out to him because uh, as he's made clear here, he does have limited time, but he's willing to be a fantastic resource. Thank yes. you for talking today, Josh. Oh, thanks for having me.